podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, Two Footed Podcast. Today is Thursday, the 27th of April. Hope you're all well. Unless you're an Arsenal fan, you may well be well. If you are an Arsenal fan, then you have my sympathies for what you went through last night. But let's start with Nottingham Forest 3, Brighton 1. I did think Forest would get something from the game. I didn't think they'd win the game, and I certainly didn't think they'd win the game by two clear goals. And it could have been more. So, Brennan Johnson misses a penalty. It's really well saved by Jason Steele. Then Buenanote goes and scores for Brighton. His first goal and his first Premier League start. It's a tap-in, but you'll take it all day if you're him. Pascal Gross puts through his own net on the stroke of half-time to put... The game back on level pegging. Uh, Renan Lodi, his cross, clips gross and finds its way into the net. And I thought, I've criticised Lodi a couple of times because I don't think he's always been as fully committed to Forrest as he possibly could be. But I thought he showed real passion in in the aftermath of that goal, which was good to see. And it's something that uh, Forrest do need. On 69 minutes, Danilo broke from midfield. Ran 30 yards with the ball and finished very well on his right foot, which is his weaker foot, to give Forrest the lead. Morgan Gibbs-White scored on 91 from the penalty spot to wrap things up. Brighton did have a goal disallowed in stoppage time. And the game had a lot of stoppage time. I think it was like 15 minutes of stoppage time played. But Forrest get a huge win. A massive, massive win for them. A win they desperately needed and a win that could play a huge role in keeping them up. So they move out of the bottom three last night into 17th place. 30 points from 33 games. A point clear now of Leicester. Two points clear of Everton in 19th, but Everton played tonight. And six points clear of Southampton, who also uh, will play tonight. They're level on points with Leeds, but behind them on goal difference. And when I look at the run-in, I do I do favour Forrest's run-in to that of Leeds. Forrest of Brentford next away. I think they could get something there. They could and should beat Southampton at home. Then they go to Chelsea, and with the way Chelsea are playing, you just don't know. They could get something there. I expect them to lose to Arsenal, but if the title race is over and Arsenal are deflated and Arteta just sends out a heavily rotated team, maybe at home Forrest can get something. And then they'll go to Crystal Palace on the final day of the season. Palace will be safe. 
and have nothing to play for. And it's not outside the realms of possibility that Forrest can get something there as well. Now, they're not going to get something from every game. They're not good enough to do that. and They're not consistent enough to do that. But I do think that is a favourable run-in in comparison to Leeds, who go to Bournemouth next. They still need something to confirm survival. Then they get City, then Newcastle, both really tough games. West Ham away and then Spurs home final day of the season. It's hard to see where Leeds are going to get points from. If they can finish above Leeds, then they only need to finish above one other team from these other three. Because oh sorry, do the do the two because I I think Southampton are probably done at this point, but they need to finish above one of Leicester or Everton. If they get Leeds below them, and they can get one of Leicester or Everton below them with Southampton, Forest are going to be safe. Everton have a tough run in. Leicester's is tough but doable, and if they can beat Everton at home, I think Leicester will be safe as well. I think Leicester and Forest. Might be the two teams that stay up. Uh, for Brighton, it's a bit of a blow last night. But they're still in a strong position for Europe. It's still in their own hands. They're four points behind Spurs with two games in hand. Four points behind Liverpool with two games in hand. Five behind Villa with three in hand. So Brighton still have a good shot at getting themselves European football for next season. And especially with the form of Spurs, you wouldn't be at all surprised to see them continue to nosedive down the table just a little bit. Uh, Chelsea nil, Brentford 2 at Stamford Bridge. And if anybody can explain to me the thought process behind Frank Lampard at home in the Premier League playing what can only be described as a 4-5-1 in which his four midfielders are Fernandez deep lying playmaker, Kovacic box to box, Gallagher box to box, and Kante a, a destroyer type. And the only attacking player in the team was Raheem Sterling. If anyone could explain what was going through his head when he picked that team, I, I would genuinely love to know. Cesar Aspilicueta put through his own goal on 37 minutes. Zanka's header hit uh, hit Aspilicueta, went in. Chelsea, they just looked so flat. They had some chances. Sterling was probably their, well, he was their only outlet, really, because of the team that Lampard picked. And he had a couple of half-decent long-range efforts, but didn't really trouble the goalkeeper. Brian Mbomo picked the ball up on 78 minutes, in the right-hand channel, drove into the box. Nobody made a real effort to get a tackle in. Thiago Silva did that thing that Virgil van Dijk is constantly criticised for, but nobody will mention. And then Bomo put it past Kepa and into the back of the net, and it was 2-0, and that was all she wrote. Another defeat for Chelsea. Uh, It's becoming embarrassing at this point. Chelsea stay in 11th place. They do have a game in hand over the teams below them. So despite the fact that both Palace and Wolves are now within two points of Chelsea, Chelsea do have that extra game to play. But that's 14 defeats on the season 
sorry, 13 defeats on the season for Chelsea. They're six points behind Fulham with the same number of games played. Eight behind Brentford with a game less played. It doesn't look like they've got much chance of catching either of those teams. Which means Chelsea will almost certainly finish in the bottom half. And I do think it's more likely that one of Palace or Wolves catch them than them catching the teams above. Because their running is not that easy either. They've got Arsenal next. That's going to be really tough. Then they go to Bournemouth, who might need something. Then it's Forest, who will need something. Then they go to City. Then they go to United. And then they play Newcastle final final day of the season. So they're going to get three of the top four in their last four games and all of the top four in their last six games. Does anybody fancy them to take much from any of those games? With the way they're playing? With Frank Lampard in charge? Five games, five defeats. And they have looked completely clueless under his management. Completely clueless. They've scored one goal in those five games. Absolutely shocking. They've scored one goal in their last seven games. Now, I get that they don't have what you'd call a reliable goal scorer. But if we take a look at the players that they have spent big money on in recent years to play in attacking areas, I don't think it's at all acceptable that this is what the situation is. So we go back to 1920. They brought in Pulisic. They bought him in the January, paid £60 million for him. He arrives. So there's one. In 2021, they bring in Hakim Ziyech as an attacking midfielder, Timo Werner as a forward, Kai Havertz, as a, an attacking midfielder slash forward. Now, Werner's gone. The other two are still there. You fast forward to the summer of 2021. They spend $100 million to bring in Romelu Lukaku. I know he's gone on loan, but they still paid the money to bring him in. They still paid money for him to come in and score goals. And then this past summer, they bring in Sterling for $50 million. They bring in Aubameyang. For around 10 million. They go again in January. Datro Fafana for 8 million. Mudrik for 62 to rise to 80 odd. And they spend another 30 million on Noni Mudeki. Like, you're talking about the better part of what, 400 million on attackers over the last four years for one goal in seven games? And it almost appears like they're trying to lose on purpose. I don't know what other explanation there would be for what we're seeing from this Chelsea team at the moment. I don't understand what Lampard was thinking with that team selection. Because if I look at the bench and you've got Aubameyang, you've got Felix, you've got Mudrik, you've got uh, Mudeki. You've got Pulisic and you've got Zayic all sitting there on the bench. And remember, I named all those players. At the beginning of all of that, 
they still had Tammy Abraham. They had Mason Mount, who's a goal scorer. You had Hudson Adoy. There was a lot of attacking players there to begin with. And they have spent all this money and moved all these players around and now find themselves in a situation where they've scored one goal in seven games. And it's easy for us to sit and laugh at Chelsea and what they've done and how much money they've spent. It's hilarious to point out that they've spent well in excess of $600 on players since Todd Bowley took over, not counting the 60-odd million that they've committed to bringing Christopher Nkunku in the summer, not counting the vast sums of money they paid to sack Tuchel, hire Potter, sack Potter. There's probably another 80 million just thrown away. So you're talking about, I would say, including Nkunku, you're talking about about 750 million spent by Todd Bowley since taking over. On top of the 100 million they paid for Romelu Lukaku the previous summer, which gives us about 850 million. Uh, on top of what was the spend there, about 200 and about 230 million um, in the summer of 2021, add Pulisic in. You're talking about over a billion quid spent on this club since the start of 2019. Even when you take out the 80 million or so to do with managers, you're still pushing close to that billion pound mark for this. Because football tends to be cycles of three to four years. The lifespan of a team now tends to be three to four years. So all of the money they've spent over the last four years, four and a bit years, should really be reflected in what we're seeing on the pitch right now. And instead, we're seeing a team that looks like the worst team in the league. Like They genuinely look like the worst team in the league. And if we take a look at their form, they're playing like the worst team in the league. Graham Potter took over and won his first three games. They'd won their last game under Tuchel in the league. Potter won his first three. So there's four wins in a row. That was October 16th, that last win, away to Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa. And if we look at the teams they beat, Everton, awful. Leicester, awful. West Ham, awful. Palace, awful. Wolves, at that point, awful. Villa, at that point, awful. So they won six of their first ten games. Sorry, six of their first nine games against bad teams. They lost to Spurs, lost to Leeds, got beaten by Southampton. So they weren't even beating all the bad teams. But... At that point, it looked like it would be a normal season for them, like they'd you know, contest top four and have decent cup runs and whatever else. Since then, they've only won four games. Bournemouth, at the time, awful. Palace, at the time, awful. Leeds, awful. Leicester, awful. They are yet to beat a team who wasn't in the relegation mix at the time of playing them. 
And since their win over Crystal Palace on the 15th of January, they've only won two games. With five draws and six defeats. If we go back a little bit further, let's go back to the start of the calendar year. They've won three games this calendar year in the Premier League. Eight defeats and six draws. Like That is relegation form. It's relegation form all the way back to October. It really is. Eight points. Sorry, eight draws since then. Four wins. So that's 20 points. 20 points. And 11 defeats. Now, that is... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two. Twenty-three games, twenty points. If we grab a quick calculator here. Twenty divided by twenty-three multiplied by thirty-eight is thirty-three points for the season. 33 points for the season since the 16th of October and and a difficult run-in to come. That, that is atrocious for that much money spent. Now, there's clearly a lot of good players there and there's, there's something there for a good manager to walk in and mould. But there's no excuse for what we've seen. Absolutely no excuse. And I've seen people try and rationalise it by saying, oh, their defence has still been pretty good. The defence has been okay at the expense of not being able to score any goals. This season, they've only scored more than two goals in a Premier League game twice. Once at home to Wolves, once away to Leicester City. That is that is really, really poor. The amount of money spent. The <laughs> the other side was they also went out of both domestic cups. In the first round. Now they were unfortunate with the draws. They got City in both. But they went out early. So it's not like they've had this hectic campaign. With loads of games. They had the league in the Champions League. And in the Champions League. They played a total of 10 games. And they lost 4 of them. With one draw. So they weren't particularly impressive in that regard either. Now they did beat Milan twice and Milan are in the semi-finals now. But I think that says more about Milan than it does about Chelsea. This is just an appalling season. I think this has to go down as one of the worst seasons. Or I actually, you know what, not one of. This is the worst season any of the top six have had. Since it became a top six. 
This is far worse than the season where it all crumbled under Jose or anything like that. This is this is appalling. Their top league goal scorer has seven goals. The next has four. Raheem Sterling has four league goals this season. Raheem Sterling has been one of the most consistently brilliant players in the Premier League for the last seven or eight years, going back to the 13-14 season Liverpool. It's more than that, so it's, what, nine years prior to this. He was brilliant for Liverpool for two straight seasons. He went to City. Fair enough, last season not great, but still 13 goals in 30 games. So even when he wasn't playing well, he was still producing. Prior to that, and especially from 17-18-19-20, sorry, 17-18-18-19-19-20, and he was outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. One of the five or six best players in the league across those three seasons. And now he just can't get out of his own way, can't can't keep his feet, can't get a shot off. And I've seen some people talk about potential decline. I mean, he's played a lot of football. He is only 28. He'll be 29 in December. He has played over 500 games. He's played 343 Premier League games. And obviously there's 82 England caps to go on top of that. So you are talking nearly 600 games of senior football. But I, I don't think decline is the reason. I just think it's the morass surrounding him. I wouldn't be surprised to see Raheem have a bounce back year next year. But, I mean, this is just horrendous from Chelsea. Um, For Brentford, ninth. That win over Chelsea will mean the world to them. Eight points clear of Chelsea with a game in hand. Looking a good bet for a top half finish, which would be a great achievement in the second season. Tremendous. Uh, moving on, West Ham 1, Liverpool 2. West Ham went 1-up through Lucas Paqueta on 12 minutes. Cody Gakbo equalised 6 minutes later. Liverpool getting in a nice habit now of responding well to going behind. They went 2-0 down at Arsenal, fought back, got a draw. Whenever Leeds would score, they whenever, when, sorry, when Leeds scored against them, Liverpool were 2-0 up, Leeds scored, Liverpool bounced back, scored straight away. Didn't give any lingering hope to Leeds. At, against Forrest, they went ahead. Forrest scored. They scored again. Forrest scored a second time. Liverpool scored a third time. Really quick turnaround. Not allowing those teams to get any confidence and start to work their way towards any kind of a, you know, a draw in Leeds situation, as it would have been potentially, or a win for Forrest. Liverpool were able to, to clamp down and take care of business. Uh, Joel Matip with the winner on 67 minutes, a towering header from an Andy Robertson corner, uh, seconds after he'd missed a great chance. So Liverpool up into sixth, three wins on the bounce. They're now a point behind Villa, and they have a game in hand. I, I think Liverpool will finish fifth this season. I think the top four will be the teams in it, as things stand. Arsenal, City, Newcastle and United. Uh, I think the top two swap places, I think it'll be City, Arsenal, Newcastle, United, Liverpool. I would back Villa for six, and I think Brighton might grab seventh. Um, But yeah, Liverpool have found a little vein of form at the business end of the season, which is promising. 
for West Ham, it puts to bed a little run that they put together. Uh, they There's some positives they could take from the game, but they weren't good in the game. Uh, Paqueta played well. A guard played very well. Zuma was pretty good. And that's probably about it. Jared Bowen was a problem for Liverpool. But that's probably about all they can really take from it. Uh, David Moyes did have a big temper tantrum and says that they're owed an apology from the VAR. I'm not sure what he's talking about. The VAR reviewed the Thiago handball, deemed it not to be a penalty because the rules state it wasn't a penalty, and that's why the referee didn't go and look at it on the screen. Moyes can have all the tantrums he wants. But the rules are the rules. The ball took a deflection off another body part before hitting Thiago's arm, which was down to brace himself in a tackle. That's not a handball. No foul, no penalty, no controversy. And I did see some strange young boy on Twitter saying that when Liverpool are refereed by Chris Kavanagh, they win 91% of the time. Imagine my surprise to learn that a team that had finished with 90 plus points in three of the previous four seasons win a lot of football matches. Breaking news. Um, final game last night then. Arsenal 4, Manchester... Sorry, I butchered that. Manchester City 4, <clears throat> Arsenal 1 at the Etihad. A comprehensive ass-kicking by City. De Bruyne opened the scoring on seven minutes. A nice layoff from Haaland just inside the Arsenal half, and it was all De Bruyne from there. John Stones doubled the lead on the stroke of half-time with a header from a De Bruyne free kick. A bit of controversy over this one because Stones went early and appeared to be offside, but... Lucky for City, when Ben White saw Stones go, he decided to go as well. And his foot played Ben White, uh, played John Stones onside. And uh, Arsenal fans are having a bit of a meltdown about it, claiming it was corrupt. But no, your player played the man onside. It's just really that simple. Uh, it's a good header from Stones off, off a great free kick. And, 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 and City deserved to be two up. They could, in fact, have been three up because Haaland had missed a good chance. Haaland missed another good chance in the second half, but then he also created a third goal for City and a second for Kevin De Bruyne, who finished with a very, very casual side foot past Aaron Ramsdale. Rob Holding gave Arsenal a momentary flicker of hope on 86 minutes. Credit to him, it's actually a great finish. But Haaland wrapped it up. On 95 and in doing so also broke the record for most goals in a 38 game Premier League season. So credit to Erling Haaland for that. Uh, City good value for the win. The 4-1 flattered Arsenal if we're being honest. Uh, It could easily have been 6-0. It really could. City were, were very dominant in the game and played some tremendous football. So uh, the league table now... Has Arsenal still top? Only two points behind, sorry, ahead of ahead of Manchester City, and City have two games in hand. 
Arsenal have five games left. Those games are Chelsea at home uh, on Tuesday. Away to Newcastle the following Sunday. Then they're home to Brighton the Sunday after that. Then they play Forest away in a late kickoff on a, on a Saturday. And then they play Wolves at home on the final day. I see them dropping points here. I think they beat Chelsea. I think they lose to Newcastle. I think the Brighton game ends in a draw. They'll beat Forest. They'll beat Wolves. I have them taking 10 more points from the remaining five games. And that will get them to 85 points on the season. That would mean that City only need to win four of their remaining seven games to be crowned league champions because they have such a significant goal difference. And for City, they have Fulham next on Sunday. You'd expect them to win at Craven Cottage. Then they play West Ham United at home on the Wednesday night. They'll win that. Then they play Leeds at home. They'll win that. Then they play Everton. On the 14th, away from home, but you'd expect them to win. And I think that's the win that will crown them as champions. Um, It'll obviously have to go to the final day because, you know, that's just the way it'll work. But um, actually, it won't even, I don't even think it'll get to the final day. I think when City beat Chelsea, I think they'll have an unassailable lead. Um, They play Brighton and Brentford in the last two games, and I think they'll be irrelevant. I think City will have the title won by the time we get to the last two games. Uh, I would back them to get a point at Brighton and perhaps beat Brentford. So I think of the last seven games, I think they win six and draw one, which will give them another 19 points, which will be 92 points and a seven-point win in the Premier League. And I've seen a lot of people talk about, you know, oh, at least we had a title race. And I've been consistent on this. Title race starts when there's 10 games left. And over Arsenal's last five games, they beat Leeds quite comfortably, 4-1. They threw away a two-goal lead against a bad Liverpool team. They threw away a two-goal lead against a bad West Ham team. They drew at home with the team bottom of the table. And then they got walloped by City. So when the title race really started, because there's no title race in January or February or early to mid-March. The title race starts in late March into April. That's when we have a title race. Going into the last 10 games, if you've got two teams within five points of each other, there's a title race for you. And as soon as the actual title race began, as soon as they felt City's breath on their neck, Arsenal crumbled. And people will make excuses for them. And some of them are relevant and some of them are not. But the bottom line is, they're not going to push City to the final day unless City start to prick about. This will be wrapped before we hit the last two games of the season. City's last two games. They will have the title won. So, Arsenal deserves some credit. 
They set out at the start of the season to get top four. They've got top four. They will be in the Champions League next season. They will finish second. But they weren't. They had for for a brief flick, a brief flicker. They were in a title race until they were in a title race, and then they crumbled. Because you see, it's really easy to play from the front until there's pressure, until you feel someone coming up behind you. Anyone can run a five k by themselves, but running a five k race is a very different thing. And unfortunately for Arsenal, they didn't have the minerals this season for any kind of title race. And I know people will say, oh, well, they'll be stronger next year. They might be. But the league will be a lot stronger next season. And when I look through that Arsenal team, I don't know how many of them I would trust to win a title. Don't trust the goalkeeper. Don't think he's got the the mental side of the game to win a title. I think he's far too emotional. I don't think his concentration is great. I wouldn't trust him. I don't trust Ben White. I don't know that I trust Sinchenko. I think if the rest of the team was better, Sinchenko would be fine. Like he was fine for City. And he's had a really good season, but I think defensively he is a bit of a of a weak link. <clears throat> I don't know that I trust Gabriel. Again, it's more the mental side because I think he is a good defender. He just makes rash decisions and has rushed the blood to the head. Saliba I would trust, but again, he's young. We need to see a lot more. Partey I would trust. Odegaard I would trust. Granit Xhaka I would not. The front three is the front three, and I think they're a really good balance. I do worry if Odegaard has a drop-off in terms of goals scored next year. Can Jesus pick up the burden? But I really like the balance of that front three and Odegaard. But I still think they have a long way to go, and the league will be a lot stronger next year. Uh, so City to win the league, City to win a third title in a row, which is a great achievement. Uh, only United have done that in the Premier League era. They're on course to win the domestic double. And of course, they're still in the hunt for the European Cup. Now, I think Real will beat them, but I would I would be in no way surprised if City won that. And I think whoever wins that City-Real tie will win the European Cup because I don't think Inter or AC Milan are good enough to match Manchester City or Real Madrid. Um, We have some games tonight. Southampton at home to Bournemouth. Massive game for Southampton. Absolutely a must-win game. And uh, going into the game... They have some injury concerns. Uh, Bednarak, the head injury he suffered at Arsenal. Salisu is out. Livermento still out. Juan Larios still out. For Bournemouth, Hamad Traore not quite ready. Jack Stevens can't play because he's owned by Southampton. Uh, Joe Rothwell, they're hopeful, will be okay to go. Ryan Fredericks and Junior Stanislas are both out. 
If Southampton want to have any hope of staying in the division, they have to win tonight. They have to win tonight. Otherwise, they're staring at a six-point gap with five games to go, and I just don't think they have enough about them. I'm going to pick the Southampton win, but Bournemouth have been a far better team of late. But if Saints play like they did against Arsenal, they can beat Bournemouth. Uh, Everton against Newcastle. It's just hard to see Everton winning this game. Uh, No Townsend, no Holgate. Seamus Coleman, a doubt. Onana, a doubt. Venegra, out. Everton have problems everywhere. They can't score. They can't defend. The Toon, Emil Kraft won't be, won't be back this season. Alan St. Maxim will miss this game. Fabian Schaar, they're hopeful he'll be okay. Gamera should be okay. Anthony Gordon making his return to Goodison Park. Everton desperate for points. It would be quite telling if Anthony Gordon could make his first real impact in a Newcastle shirt against his former club. And, you know, you're looking at Everton's running. This is a tough game. At the weekend, they've got to go to Leicester, a relegation six-pointer. Then it's Brighton. Then it's City. Do you you fancy them to get anything from either of those games? Then they go to Wolves, who'll probably need something from that game or might, might need something from that game. And then Bournemouth on the final day. And if, if things go badly for Bournemouth over the next couple of day, games, they might need something. So it's not looking good for Everton. It really is not looking good for Everton. Now, this relegation will sit squarely on the shoulders of Frank Lampard, regardless of how his friends in the media will rush to um, absolve him of any blame. Final game tonight, then, is Tottenham against Manchester United. Uh, the first two games, Saints, Bournemouth, Everton, Newcastle are quarter to eight. And that game is quarter past eight, uh, if you're planning to watch. Tottenham, no Emerson, no Hugo Lloris, no Yves Basuma, no Bentoncourt and no Sessegnon. But United have a bunch of injuries. No Martinez, no Rafa Varane, no Van de Beek, no McTominay. Unlikely to be Bruno Fernandes. No Tom Heaton, no Garnacho, no Phil Jones, and obviously no Mason Greenwood. Uh, Spurs need a reaction. They need a performance. United have not been good away from home this season. I'm going to pick Spurs to win that game. I'm going to say Southampton, Newcastle, and Spurs are my winners for tonight. Um, in the championship last night, we had one game that is is prevalent. Uh, Sheffield United 2 West Brom nil, Sander Burge and Anil Ahmed Hozic with the goals. What those goals mean and what that win means is that Sheffield United have been promoted to the Premier League. They will finish second in the Championship this season. They have 85 points. They are seven points clear of Luton, who only have two games left. And therefore, Sheffield United have been promoted. So they joined Burnley coming back to the Premier League. And we welcome them back with open arms. Congratulations to everybody involved. Uh, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll have some listeners' questions. And we'll do the gossip and we'll be done nice and quick today. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while keeping your data safe. 
So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Right, welcome back. So, it is Thursday, which means listeners' questions. So we'll jump straight in. Uh, Rick M, what was Dan Ashworth's role at Brighton? Should he be given credit for the players they signed? Or was that down to other people? Uh, No, he should not be given credit for the players they have signed. He had no role in the recruitment, nor does their current sporting director, David Weir. Uh, Recruitment is handled separately, largely by, in terms of identification and scouting, is handled separately, largely by Tony Bloom's private company. The people that are there in recruitment roles are largely there in terms of negotiation and background checks and stuff like that. But... Tony Bloom has been very clever with this. He knows that the bigger clubs will come in and poach people. So he keeps those people separate. He keeps them private. I doubt most of the clubs know who Brighton's actual talent spotters actually are. So um, Ashwood's role was more about overseeing the operation side of the football club. So, you know, liaising with all the different departments to make sure everything was running smoothly. He was more, I suppose, a president of football operations type of role, while Paul Barber handled the business side of things. Um, so, you know, Newcastle think they've gotten this great, or well, Newcastle fans think they've gotten this great talent spotter. Not so much. Not so much. And the names of players we've heard linked to Newcastle, 
the young Brazilian lads. I'd imagine they're just names that Brighton were looking at that had been kind of mentioned in conversation and he's brought with him. Now, no doubt he will put a good scouting network in place, but I don't remember his recruitment at West Brom being fantastic. I think he's a very good manager of a football club. Not not a manager of a football team, but manager of a football club. In, in, in Meaning, I think he can ensure that all departments run smoothly. I... Just don't think you want him running your recruitment. Uh, Isaac Gilding, to your mind, what is the best single save from these keepers? I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, Alison Terstegen, Czech, Neuer, Courtois, Oblak, Schmeichel, Van der Sar, Buffon, Casillas, De Gea, Barthez and Seaman. Right, David Seaman, it's the header from Paul Pesky Scalido in an FA Cup semi-final. That's the, the standout save of David Seaman's career to my mind. Fabian Barthez, Didi Haman tried to chip him from about 45 yards when Barthez was at United and he somehow managed to recover back to his line and tip it over the bar. De Gea, I couldn't tell you. Casillas, I couldn't pick one save out, but the game that's always stood out to me was the European Cup final. Was that? Hang on a sec. Uh, to see us. Yeah, the two thousand. Was it the two thousand? No, they won that game three 0 Yeah, it was the Bayer Leverkusen final. The Bayer Leverkusen final when Real won 2-1 in 2002. That's the one. He made a bunch of really good saves in that game. I couldn't pick one save out over his career. But that's the game that's always stuck in my head as sort of the defining uh, Casillas moment. And it was really early in his career. Buffon. There's a save that he made at Parma. And I, for the life of me, don't remember who took the shot. I want to say it was Parma against maybe Sampdoria. And there's a volley from probably 25 yards out that's hit with the outside of the foot with real dip and venom. And Buffon was a couple of yards off his line and somehow clawed this thing out of the top corner. And I... I, to this day, I cannot remember who the game was against or who took the shot. But I just remember, because he was only 17 or 18 at the time, I remember him clawing the ball out of the top corner and the commentators going absolutely mental. Uh, so that would be the one for me with Buffon. Um, Van der Sar, there's a save in that European Cup final that... Ajax won against Juve. No, against Milan? Against Milan, I think. Yeah, against Milan. Um, Was it Milan or was it you? I can't remember. There's a save in that European Cup. I think it was the final. It could have been in the run. That's been replayed a few times. It's always really impressed me. Um, Peter Schmeichel, there was a save in a European game that's very similar to the Gordon Banks 
save. But what always stands out with me for Schmeichel was the cross from the left or the right to the back post where he would work his way across and do the star jump to block. And that's always just stood out to me as kind of the definitive Peter Schmeichel kind of save. Um, Thibaut Courtois, I would say, his overall performance in last year's European Cup final is probably where I'd look. The save from Salah, sensational. Um, All Black, there's a triple save that he made that was just obscene. You'll find it. You'll find it on YouTube. Uh, Manuel Naur, the best save I've ever seen him make was for Schalke against Manchester United in a Champions League game. Petr Cech, in his first season with Chelsea, he plucked one out of the top corner with both hands and held it. And I mean, he went full length across the goal, held it with both hands and kept it out of the net. And I, I still don't know how. Terstegen. There's a save when he was at Borussia Mönchengladbach. I want to say from Thomas Muller. It's a ball played into the box. Lewandowski kind of doesn't so much head it down as just sort of knocks it down. And it lands to Muller who hits it as it bounces. And Ter Stegen, from being completely blinded by the players in front of him, I think just guessed this is the side it's going. And managed to get across and make a phenomenal save. And with Alisson, the one that always stands out to me is the save against Napoli in that Champions League run. Um, I think from Dries Mertens. It, it could have been Milik, but I think it was Dries Mertens. Um, where Lovren made the big mistake and Alisson flew off the line and, and made a phenomenal save. There, th- That's my best go with that. Um, AMK2889, had Mourinho been appointed Liverpool manager rather than Chelsea manager, would he have had, would he have been as successful so quickly? Would he have been as successful, period? What players would he have possibly wanted in as well as out? Finally, would Liverpool ownership have been more lenient with setbacks than Roman was? Uh, the, the, the last part is definitely yes. They would have been more lenient with setbacks, without question. Um... Would he have been a successful period? Let's have a quick gander. What did he win there? Two two league titles and two league cups? Jose. I think he could have won the European Cup with that Liverpool team. Benitez did it. I think he could have done it. Uh, two league titles, two league cups and an FA Cup. So league and league cup double the first year, league the second year, cup double the third year. It's funny, that cup double is always overlooked. Nobody ever really talks about it. But when Arsenal did it back in the early 90s, it was such a huge thing. And obviously Liverpool did it again last year. Other teams have done it in the interim. Um, I think he could have been a successful Liverpool. I don't know that he would have won two league titles. But it would have depended on how long he stayed. If he'd stayed five or six years, and maybe he would have if he joined Liverpool rather than Chelsea, and hadn't gotten himself into that kind of spin cycle of pressure cooker jobs, uh, which Liverpool has never really been, uh, then maybe he could have been. I certainly think Jose at every point was a better manager 
than than Rafa. As good as Rafa was, I just don't think he was ever quite on Mourinho's level. Um, who would he have wanted? Let's have a look at this squad. Uh, I think the first thing he would have wanted would have been a goalkeeper. I don't think Jersey Dudek would have done for him. Now, the other goalkeeper in the squad, was, the, the, the goalkeepers in the squad were Chris Kirkland and Scott Carson. Kirkland was the prototype of a Mourinho goalkeeper. He was massive. And he was agile, but the injuries were just horrendous for him throughout his career. Um, I think he would have wanted a goalkeeper. I, who it would have been, I, I, I genuinely don't know. I think he would have quite liked Steve Finnan. He would have loved Hippia. He would have liked Carragher. I think he would have wanted a left back in straight away. I think he... As much as he would have liked Sammy and Carragher, I think he wanted Carvalho wherever he was going. And I think that was one of the reasons Liverpool kind of shied away from it. Because he was going to be demanding, you know, certain players. Um, so Carvalho, I think, is one he would have wanted. He he had definitely identified Essien before he went there as well. Um, but, I mean, he, he tried to buy Gerrard three different times by his own admission. So he definitely would have wanted him. I don't think he would have bought Alonso. I think he would have probably gone for more uh, more kind of graft and power in midfield. He had Haman. I think he would have looked for Essien. Now, at the time, obviously, Essien was at Lyon. And Essien didn't arrive till Jose's second season, I want to say. Uh, yeah, Essien arrived for the second season. I, I think he would have... because But Chelsea tried to buy him the previous summer. I think he would have liked Essien... Essien and Carvalho are, are the two I think he would have wanted. But Chelsea spent $24 million on Essien. And I think Carvalho was in around the same. Uh, Ricardo Carvalho. Uh, just over $20 million. So that's $45 million. Liverpool that first summer under Rafa spent... About 20 million. Part of that was because they had Gibral Cisse coming in. I think he would have been happy enough with Cisse. He obviously brought Drogba to Chelsea. I think he would have been okay with Cisse instead. Um, but yeah, Liverpool just didn't, didn't have the money for whatever reason. Uh, I do wonder if he could have convinced Michael Owen to stay though. That's always been something I've wondered about. Would Michael Owen have had a look at the Europe, reigning European Cup winning manager, the the hottest managerial prospect in the world, and thought, you know what, I'll sign a, I'll sign a new deal here. Um, we'll never know, but I, I think he would have been successful. I don't know would he have been as successful, but if he'd stayed long enough, yeah, sure, he definitely would have had success because I think Jose is one of the greatest managers of all time. But the two players, I think. He definitely would have wanted in were Essien and Carvalho. Because if I'm not mistaken, he also tried to buy Essien for Porto from Bastia before he went to Lyon. After that UEFA Cup win of his, I think he tried to buy Essien. Um, Matt JT, who are some current Premier League players that you 
could could follow a similar career path to Salah, where if they left the Premier League for a few seasons, they could come back and make a big impact and what European teams would be good fits for them before returning. So, we're sort of looking at players in their early 20s who maybe things haven't worked out brilliantly at their current club. So, the obvious one that jumps off the page to me is Sancho. Because it hasn't really worked for him at United and you know, he doesn't really have a starting spot at United now because you've got Anthony, who this current manager's paid a lot of money for. Rashford plays on the left, Bruno's the ten, and the manager wants a number nine. So Sancho's kind of stuck in a squad role. They've also got Garnacho coming through, who's shown, you know, really good flashes. Um so Sancho would be one. Now, where would he go? I would say I'd love to see him in, in La Liga. It doesn't really fit Real Madrid. He's not going to get in the Real team, I don't think. Barcelona on the left with Alejandro Balde. That could be fun. That could be a lot of fun. Um, Bayern. On the left with Alfonso Davies as his fullback. PSG. Reunite with Hakimi. Don't think any of the Italian clubs really have the cash to do it. But, you know, he could do quite well in Italy. Game's a bit slower. He's a bit more of a creative player rather than a pace player. He beats players with subtlety rather than pace and power. Um, I still think there's a real player there, but it, it is the right club. He's got to go to the right club. I think he could actually be dynamite at PSG with Hakimi and Nuno Mendes as his fullbacks. Um, they're the ideal type of fullbacks slash wingbacks to play with a Sancho. If, to be honest, the move for him is Spurs because they're going to have the wingbacks next year. Pedro Porro on the right. Destiny Adoji on the left. Play him either wing, and I think he'd be I think he'd be dynamite. Uh but yeah, Sancho be one. Kai Havertz, potentially. I don't think it's really worked for him at Chelsea. I know he scored in the European Cup final to win a European Cup, but would anybody really call his time at Chelsea a success? Probably not. Um so I think he could do it going to a different league, maybe and developing a bit more. Might just help to have a real manager at Chelsea. That, that's going to use him properly. Tuchel had to be overly defensive because of certain players, and Lampard's a PE teacher. Potter is just was unqualified for the job. Um, the obvious move for him would be to Bayern, but again, that's just that's a destination rather than a, a go there and prove yourself kind of move. Um, AC Milan would be interesting for Kai. Play as a 10. Could be very, very interesting. Roma could be interesting for Kai. Play as one of the two withdrawn behind Tammy. Yeah, I think I think Kai is one. Um, The one for Arsenal would be Nicola Pepe, but I mean, he it has to be the very, very specific team for him. And, and I just don't know if maybe he's just not suited to the Premier League. So we'll just leave him as he is. 
Um, I'm trying to just think through. I mean, could can we say Richarlison, given how things have gone at Spurs? I think he could be one that could benefit from a move and coming back to, you know, a different club as a more rounded player. Um, Mudrick is trending that way, but it's very early with him. We won't we won't be too mean. Um, you could make an argument that Darwin Nunes could have done with a bit more seasoning and maybe maybe a move to Spain, to uh, Sevilla, where he plays a number nine, would have been beneficial to him. But, you know, I think Darwin's going to come good next season. Um, the the big two for me would be would be Sancho and Kai. I think they're I think they're the two with the potential to be really elite players. Um, but I think the, the they made the wrong moves and they made them at the wrong time. Um, who are some former Premier League players playing in Europe now ready to return and make a bigger impact? I think I think Timo Werner could come back and do really well at a club that is in Chelsea. I think he could do really well at Newcastle as an example in that left-sided role in the front three. I think with the with the space that Isak can create with the style of play, that front-footed pressing style, I think Timo Werner could actually be tremendous for Newcastle. Um, I think Tammy Abraham's ready to come back. And I think if you're, well, if you're Chelsea, you're probably regretting letting them leave. But if you're Arsenal and you are looking for a different type of striker to Gabriel Jesus, then Tammy Abraham might be one who makes sense for you. Now, it would all depend on price, obviously, but I think Tammy would fit quite well into how Chelsea, into how uh, Arsenal play, rather. Um, Rafinha, for sure, he's been linked to Newcastle in recent, recent days, um, would fit at Arsenal, would fit at Chelsea, would fit pretty much anywhere. Rafinha is outstanding. I, I would like to see him back in the league very much. Uh, so they're the three I'd go with there. Um, do have a couple more then. Uh, let's see if we can find them. I know one was sent in a Twitter DM. Uh, Mikhail Campbell. Uh, what are your thoughts on Miami Heat star Jimmy Butler's performance in the NBA playoffs so far? He's been unbelievable. He has been the best player in the playoffs this season, and it isn't close. The Heat went in as the eighth seed, having bottled the play-in, were written off by everybody, have had a really poor season, and Jimmy Butler has put together one of the great series anyone has seen. Now, they were aided and abetted by the fact that Giannis got injured, but what Jimmy's done over the last couple of games... Outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. Let's just take a quick look at Jimmy's game log. So, last night, 42 points on 17 of 33 shooting, 8 rebounds, 4 assists, 2 steals and a block. In game 4, 56 points in 41 minutes. Uh, 19 of 28 shooting, 9 rebounds, 2 assists and a block. In game 3, 30 points in 28 minutes, 5 rebounds, 4 assists and 2 steals. In game 2, 25 points in 28 minutes. In game 1, 35 points 
with 11 assists, five rebounds and three steals. Jimmy Butler in the playoffs is just a different type of beast. And I love watching him play. He plays incredibly tough defense as well. And he just has, like, Jimmy knows what Jimmy can do and what Jimmy can't do. Jimmy's not a good three-point shooter. Now, sometimes he gets a bit carried away and he will will chuck up eight or nine threes. But Jimmy knows he's not good from three. So Jimmy tries to work in the mid-range. He tries, tries to get to the basket. He tries to win the free-throw battle. Uh, he's a five-time all-defensive player as well. Four times all-NBA, six-time all-star. It didn't work out in Minnesota. I wish it had. I wish we'd kept him and kind of blown up the rest of it. But Jimmy is is incredible. And uh, this playoff run has just been utterly ridiculous. Um, Which footballer, past or present, is comparable career-wise to the Miami Heat's Jimmy Butler? I would say Tony Cruz. And the reason I'd say him is because during the season, you can watch any Real Madrid league game and he will just be completely anonymous. And then you watch him in the biggest Champions League game, and the entire game runs through him. I'd say Tony Cruz. And finally, which team will win their respective league this season? Uh, sorry, which team is most likely to win their respective league this season? Dortmund or Arsenal? Now, he asked this before the game last night. The answer at the time was probably Dortmund. The answer now is... Absolutely Dortmund. Um I I I think I think Dortmund are in with a great a great chance to, to claim the Bundesliga title. Um just I'm so surprised by Bayern and how poor they've been across the season. The fact that they've given him a given given this kind of a chance to Dortmund is uh, is really strange. Really, really strange. Uh, last question then is from Andy F at Aform3 on Twitter. Who are your favourite TV commentators to listen to during the EPL matches right now in all time? Is there anybody who's an equal of John Madden for the NFL or Marv Albert for the NBA? Uh, now... Peter Drury is is the guy. Peter Drury is the best around right now. Uh, I think Clive Tilsley, Tilsley is probably number two. And after that, I think it's a big, big drop-off. I think Drury's, Drury's like a poet. He's just so good at what he does. Um, in terms of the... The kind of the John Madden, the Marv, Marv Albert, the, the legendary voices. Barry Davis and John Motson are the two, but they're, they've never really been commentators for the Premier League. They did match of the day, but they were never on Sky. And I never understood why Sky didn't go all out to try and get one or both of them at the beginning of the Premier League, instead inflicting Martin Tyler on us, who is just awful. Um, but if, if you're looking for the best football commentators of all time, those two are really special. Um, Jimmy McGee, an Irish commentator who could turn his hand to pretty much 
any sport, phenomenal. Uh, George Hamilton was another Irish one. He was brilliant. But Jimmy McGee would be the one I'd put up uh, along with Barry Davies and John Motson as the three who kind of defined my life as my early life as a a sports watcher. Uh, and the thing with them was they could turn their hand to anything. Um, Barry Davies covered tennis, badminton, ice hockey, ice skating, gymnastics, field hockey, cycling, beach volleyball, and athletics through Olympic Games. Uh, Jimmy McGee would literally cover two snails going up a wall and make it enjoyable. He covered the Olympics and football um, from 1966 was his first World Cup, the 1968 Olympics, and he was outrageously good for most of his career. Um, Another great one would be David Coleman, who was primarily known for the Olympics, but also covered a number of World Cups. Um, But he would be well before all of our time. It's mostly just on uh, for football, mostly known uh, for the Olympics in, in latter years. His football commentating kind of came to an end in the 80s. Um, but David Coleman was was phenomenal as well. And the, and the thing that made all of these guys is they all got their start in radio. And that's why they became such descriptive commentators. Um, so, yeah, I, John Motson, Barry Davies, Jimmy McGee, and I would give you the name of David Coleman as well, uh, just as a great sports broadcaster, uh, notably uh, David Coleman of Irish heritage. Jimmy McGee was Irish, of course. Uh, Barry Davies and Motson were, were very much um, very much British, but, you know, you'll, you'll have that. Um, right. Last, que- last thing. This wasn't a question. This is just something I saw on Twitter and it annoyed me. So Jamie Carragher asked the question, if City win the treble, will they join the list of teams that have changed football? And he listed a couple of teams. He listed Cruyff's Dream Team. He listed Saki's Milan and Pep's Barcelona. And to me, Jamie Carragher's paid an extraordinary amount of money to talk about football. And he talks about himself as a student of the game. And yet he's giving praise where praise is not warranted. Uh, Pep Guardiola hasn't changed anything in football. Does he inspire others? Absolutely he does. But Pep hasn't invented anything. Pep didn't invent the false nine. He didn't invent possession football. He didn't invent tiki-taka. He didn't invent an inverted fullback. None of these things that Pep is doing are his own creations. They're all things he's taken from other managers. And people will always point at Johan Cruyff as well and give Cruyff huge credit for the style of football and different tactical elements. And again, not praise earned, not praise deserved. Was Cruyff a great manager? Yeah, he was at Barcelona. Not so much elsewhere, but he was at Barcelona. But Cruyff's real influence on the game was on what he did at La Masia. That's the biggest thing Cruyff achieved in the game after his playing days was the influence he had on the academies 
at La Masia, but much of that he also borrowed from what they've been doing at Ajax, which he took from Renus Michaels, who had borrowed some of it from Valery Labanovsky and some of it was his own thinking. But we're at a point in football where we seem to be forgetting the history and the past of the game and we're giving all this praise to people because they're the here and now and ignoring the fact that they just nicked this idea from somebody who's now dead and gone. There is a direct lineage to be found in pretty much all modern football thinking. And it goes to either the Saki school or the Cruyff school. So the likes of Pep and Arteta and Xavi and the possession-based teams, they're from the Cruyff school. People like Klopp and Simeone and Conte, they're more from the Saki school. But the Saki school is a direct descendant of Labanovsky. And the Cruyff school is the love child of, well, the, the bastard love child of Renus Michaels. No one knows who the daddy is, but the, the mother was Renus Michaels and his way of thinking. And both of them intersect in one place, and that's Gustav Sebes. Both of whom... Renis Michaels and Valery Lavanovsky have credited with their approach to football. Like, when people talk about total football, everybody points to the Dutch and to Renis Michaels. But Renis Michaels would have pointed to Lavanovsky and Lavanovsky would have pointed back at him because both of them created total football. And they did it by taking what Gustav Sebes did. What Gustav Sebes did with the Hungarian national team was total football. And if you look at what that national team did, the false nine was prevalent in that team back in the 50s. What we now see as an inverted fullback was just what he did back then. He would use a centre-back to often, what we would now class as a centre-back, to step into that role in the same way Pep is doing with John Stones right now. Gustav Sebes influenced Labanovsky and Rinus Michaels, who are the two most influential coaches of the past 50 years. But both of them take their ideology from him. And he learned most of his from Jimmy Hogan. Jimmy Hogan, for those that don't know, was born and raised in Burnley, son of an Irish immigrant, of course, Irish Catholics, a good, good fellow, who once played a friendly against the Dutch team, thought they were awful, and decided he was going to go and show them chaps how to play football properly, and went as, and made his name around Europe, and then made his legacy by teaching others his beliefs on how the game should be played. And when we talk about things like this new shiny formation that Guardiola is using or the one Arteta uses, nothing about it is new. They're not innovating anything. All of this goes back to the old WM formation that we used to see back in the 40s and 50s 
which was influenced heavily by the teachings and thought of Jimmy Hogan. So when I see this idea that Guardiola is changing football, it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. And Carragher should know better. And he should look to read about these these teams. You can look at the old River Plate teams in the 1940s and what they were doing and how they were using their quote-unquote number nine. And it's very similar to what Pep was doing with Messi at Barcelona as a false nine. The team under... Uh, Jose Maria Manella was noted for that fluidity in the front line and what he was able to do in terms of tactical flexibility. So, you know, he was another one that influenced many people with his teachings on the game. But there was a... There was a... um, a belief in Argentina from before him, influenced hugely by the Hungarians, three of whom had gone to manage River Plate before Manella took over, that led to that way of thinking. And those Hungarians had also worked with Jimmy Hogan and learned from Jimmy Hogan and were part of the group of people that he thought his beliefs to. Um, Imre Herschel, who managed in the 1930s at River Plate, he had done many similar things to what Manella did. And again, he had learned what he learned from Jimmy Hogan. So wherever you look, you're going to find the same core group of people as the real source of influence for all modern football. We're not seeing anything new, ever. None of it is new. You just have to go back in history and find where it's from. And Guardiola is a proper student of the game. Now, Gary Neville tried to jump in and say that the United treble winning team changed football. And that's obviously just not true at all. Um, That was a... An incredible team. Neville's contention is that Alex Ferguson changed football through squad rotation and having a pool of strikers. And he claimed no one was doing it beforehand. Well, I can point you back to the early 90s, to Fabio Capello at AC Milan, who rotated and had a pool of strikers. But I wouldn't say that Fabio Capello was the one that pioneered that. Because before him, Arrigo Sacchi did it. And before Arrigo Sacchi, Valery Labanovsky was doing it with Dinamo Kiev in the 70s and early 80s. So again, Gary Neville doesn't know his history. Gary Neville seems to think that nobody in England was doing it equates to nobody was doing it, but it just doesn't. So there we go. End of rant. Give credit where it's due. Do not give credit that is undue. And perhaps, you know, an hour a week, take a deep dive into the history of the game, some of the influential managers, some of the influential tacticians, 
who are largely responsible for the game we see today, not people that are working in the game today who are reacting and learning from those who came before. Um, last little nugget here. Inter Milan won Juventus nil last night in the Coppa Italia semi-final second leg. Um, Inter th- threw 2-1 on aggregate. And they will face uh, the winner of Fiorentina versus Cremonese. Fiorentina are at home tonight. 2-0 up from the first leg, and you would expect them to cruise through. We'll finish off with the gossip. Manchester United want to sign Harry Kane, but will walk away and pursue other options rather than getting involved in a lengthy battle over transfer fees with Tottenham. So Jim Radcliffe will allow Manchester United owners, the Glazers, to keep 20% of the club as part of his latest offer, and I think he is going to be successful. Reports today from Bloomberg that the potential bidders have been asked to show evidence of funding and where that money came from. Because as we know, the Qatari gentleman attempting to buy the club does not actually have the money to buy the club. His net worth is in the region of $1.5 He does not own um, some mega business that he could absorb Manchester United into and use, obviously, to pay for Manchester United, unlike Jim Radcliffe with Ineos, uh, that money would be coming from the Qatari government, and everybody knows it, and they shouldn't be allowed to buy the club. I think Jim Radcliffe will buy the club, and I think the Glazers will take uh, will, will keep a percentage, and, th- and that's assuming it is sold. It may well still be that we get a minority owner, which is, I think, what the Glazers would prefer, but I do think Radcliffe with the Glazers as a minority owners is what might happen. Um, Rizzo Pochettino is not using an agent as he negotiates the finer details of his appointment as Chelsea's next head, head coach. I don't think he's ever had an agent. Uh, Pochettino, has reached an, uh, Pochettino has reached a verbal agreement with Chelsea to take over as the club's next manager. Spain goalkeeper David Rea and... England striker Ivan Tony are being monitored by Chelsea for summer transfer. Didn't I suggest both of them? I believe I did. And now Tom Coley is reporting that both of them are on the agenda. Uh, Todd, if you're listening, I am available. I'm not that expensive. I can come in, get things running for you. No problem at all. Just give me a call. Um, Chelsea are set to meet into Milan to discuss the future of Romelu Lukaku. Uh, the future of Romelu Lukaku is not going to be at Inter Milan. Liverpool could spend big on Nicolo Barella, despite ruling out signing Jude Bellingham. Barella, the max price for him is going to be two-thirds the price for Jude. It's going to be $80 million as opposed to $120 million, which leaves $40 million, which buys you another good player. So not going for Jude doesn't rule out, not going for, doesn't rule out going for someone else like Barella. Uh, Arsenal, Tottenham and Newcastle are all interested in Rafinha. Arsenal had interest last summer, obviously. Um, I I just don't see that he's going to want to sit on the bench behind Saka. Aston Villa are interested in Emile Smith-Rowe, who is disappointed with his lack of opportunity at the Gunners. He is yet to start a Premier League game this season, which is, uh, is quite something. Um... 
Brighton are confident they will be able to agree and improve contract with Carol Matoma, who has been linked with Arsenal. I think they will. Rafael Leao has turned down offers to join Real Madrid and Chelsea. I, I, I could believe Chelsea. I don't believe that he's had an offer from Real Madrid. They've got Vinicius left wing. They've got Rodrigo in reserve, who can also play across the front line, but they're not going to be buying a left winger. Uh, by the way, Real Madrid, uh, Girona, I-, I was sickened by what I saw. I think it was Girona. Let me just check that. I, I don't want to... Yeah, Girona. Real Madrid playing Girona last uh, Tuesday night. Girona win 4-2. Castellano scores all four. Uh, the entire... Not the entire. Large portions of the stadium chanting racial abuse at Vinicius. Absolutely disgusting behaviour. Absolutely disgusting. And if the Spanish FA and La Liga had anything about them, that stadium would be closed for the rest of the season. That is disgraceful. And there's been some talk that Vinicius has had enough of Spain. And it wouldn't be a surprise if he turns around in the next year or so and says, I I just don't want to be here anymore. This is disgusting. How is it in 2023 that we still have Neanderthals being racist in any walk of life, let alone going to a football stadium en masse and being openly racist? AC Milan could swap Charles de Ketelier for Gianluca Scamacca in the summer transfer. No, they could MLS Commissioner Don Garber says it will take a clever league-wide effort to get a deal done to bring Lionel Messi to the United States. It'll take a Beckham deal. I've said this all along. That's what it's going to take. They're going to have to offer him significant equity in a future franchise to get him to go across. And it's what they should do. And as I've said, Phoenix and San Diego. MLS, I've done the groundwork for you on this. Phoenix or San Diego? Give Messi a significant stake of the future franchise to go in one of those cities. Find some mega rich person with plenty of money who wants to get in in partnership with the likes of Leo. And it's a very easy thing to make happen. Uh, Leicester centre-back Kagler Sionchu will join Atletico Madrid on a free transfer in the summer when the 26-year-old's contract with the Foxes ends. Everybody's known that for weeks. Um, Back to the Messi thing. It's easy to do. You play some... Look, you're going to have to give a dispensation to some franchise in a glamour market. So L.A., Miami or New York. I don't think Messi's going to have interest in going anywhere else. One of them is going to have to get some sort of dispensation where they're allowed to sign Messi and it doesn't affect their salary cap. Now, getting the rest of the teams to sign off on that is obviously not going to be the easiest thing in the world, but I do think it's what needs to happen. LA Galaxy are awful. That's where Beckham went. It's probably where Messi should go. And he plays two years there or whatever. Let him go back and play for Newell's old boys if he wants to retire there. And then you create 
a new franchise in Phoenix or San Diego, somewhere nice and warm, somewhere metropolitan, and you give Messi 40%, 50%, I don't know, whatever it takes. That's how you get him there. Otherwise, why would he? Why would he? He can go back to Barcelona, he can go to Saudi Arabia, go back, he's got more than enough money, go to Argentina and play for three years. Right, long show today. Apologies for that. I will see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.